Hi, everybody. I'm Terry. I don't do this a lot, so I've got my name written down in case I forget it. Um, I'm a member of the Dunwoody Al-Anon family group, and I'm a member in good standing. And um, I'd like to thank Alice for the very warm welcome her and her husband gave us last night. Um, I was very nervous about coming up here and speaking. And once I sat down and had dinner with Alice and some other people, I felt very comfortable because I realized that I was here with a bunch of Al-Anons and AAs, and I know that I'm in, I'm in good company when I'm with Al-Anons and AAs. I'm going to do something I never do, and I don't know why, but I'm going to tell a joke. <laughs> and my, my husband's in the audience, and he, he knows I'm not a good joke teller, so I have like one joke that I can tell, so he probably knows what joke it is. This is not a conference-approved joke, but it does have alcohol in it. <laughs> the, the brunette walks into the bar, and she goes up to the bartender, and she says, I'd like a VT, please. And the bartender says, a VT? I'm sorry, ma'am, I don't know what a VT is. And she goes, duh, vodka tonic. So he goes off and makes her drink, and she goes on her way. And then the redhead comes into the bar, and she goes up to the bartender, and she says, I'd like a GT, please. And the bartender says, I'm sorry, ma'am, I don't know what a GT is. And the redhead goes, duh, gin and tonic. So he makes her drink, and she goes on her way. Well, then the blonde comes into the bar. And she goes up to the bartender, and she says, I'd like a 15, please. And the bartender says, 15? I'm sorry, ma'am. I have no idea what a 15 is. And she goes, duh, 7 and 7. <laughs> okay, I got through that. Now we can continue on. I would like to thank the committee for inviting me. Um, I think I'd like to thank them. This is a real honor to come up here and be allowed to share my experience, strength, and hope with you. And that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell my story, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. And I'm telling it from my perspective. If you talk to my husband, you might get a little different view. If you talk to my family, you might get a little different view. But this is the way I thought. Um, as I said, my name is Terry. And I, I've been a member of Al-Anon since March 21st, I think it was, 1988. And my home group is the Dunwoody Al-Anon Family Group. We meet just outside of Atlanta on Mondays and Wednesdays. I guess that's all the background. I guess we got to get to it now. I was born January 11th, 1954. And for any of those who didn't get my joke, I'm 44 years old. <laughs> um, I'm the fifth of six children. And I kind of look at my position in the family as looking at our family album. If you go through it, the firstborn is my sister, and she was the first child, and you know how it is when you have your first kid. There's lots and lots of pictures. I mean, we got the pictures of her on the little bear rug with no clothes on, you know, the whole, the whole bit. Then following that, two years later, is my oldest brother. And it's a, this time it's another baby, but it's a boy. So that was big excitement. You know, we had a girl, now we got a boy. So there's lots and lots and lots of pictures of the boy. And then, two years later, we have twin boys. 
So that's pretty exciting, you know, instead of just having a baby, we've got, you know, I've got these two cute little babies. So there's lots and lots and lots of pictures of them. And then two years later, there's a little pattern here, two years, two years, two years. Two years later, I was born. Well, by this time, we've had a girl, we've had a boy, we've had twins. It's just another kid. <laughs> I asked my mother why there weren't any pictures of me, why there were so few pictures of me, and she said it was because I never smiled. But I, I think it was because she was too busy. Her and my dad were too busy. They had I was the fifth kid. Anyhow, then we wait six years, and six years later, my little brother was born. Well, by this time, it's a novelty again. We haven't had a baby in six years. And um, my oldest sister by this time is 12 years old, and she's got her own little brownie camera, and she thinks, you know, she's got, like, this is her child, you know. She was going to take care of him. So there's lots and lots of pictures of him. So I was just kind of stuck in the middle, and I felt kind of forgotten at times. Um, my childhood was... It was a good childhood. I can't, you know, really can't complain about it at all. My parents did the very best they could, and they did a pretty pretty good job, you know, with six kids. My mother stayed at home and took care of us. My father was an electrician, and he worked a lot of overtime. I didn't see a lot of him, but he he kept food on the table, and we were, we were never wanting for anything. Um, I was very fearful as a child. When I look at my childhood, that's what I think of as being afraid. I used to um, play with a little girl two, do- two doors away, and I wouldn't go to her yard and play with her. She had to come to my yard. That was too far away from my mother, her yard. If my brothers would go with me, then I would go, but I wouldn't go by myself. And I was very, very shy. Um, and the way I got attention or tried to get attention was by being good. I was afraid to do anything wrong. I have an Alan on friend who says that she was out in the desert and came across stop sign and there was no one around for miles and miles, she would stop because the stop sign was there. That's me. Now, my alcoholic husband, he'd go through it. (laughs) Sorry, Frank. (laughs) But to me, that's one of the differences between Al-Anon's and alcoholics. Um, But that's how I was. I was, you know, I just, I was afraid to do anything wrong and I thought if I did good, that then I would get the attention that I wanted and needed from my parents. And so I was a very good student, and I was always the teacher's pet. And I did get attention, but not as much attention when my, you know, when my brothers were acting up, they got more attention. But they also got in trouble a lot more than I did. If, if ever I did do anything wrong, my mother usually blamed it on my brothers because they were supposed to be watching me. <laughs> so they kind of got the sword into that stick. Um, I got into high school, and I still continued that behavior that, I, you know, I was a good student. I was a nerd. I had, um, you know, those glasses that went off in little points. They're starting to come back into fashion. But um, back then, they were going out of fashion, and I still had them. And I was a bookworm. Um, one of my character traits, defects, is that I like to be, to be perfect. I want to be perfect. And... Um, I wouldn't do anything if I couldn't do it perfectly. So as a result, I didn't do a lot. I, I studied and I read. I avoided sports because I wasn't very good at them. And I didn't want people to laugh at me because, you know, instead of catching the ball, it hit me in the thigh and I'd have a big bruise on my thigh, you know, when we played baseball. Um, I hung out with my brothers. 
I had the, the twin brothers were two years older than me, and I hung out with them in a group, and you know, it was a group of girls and a group of guys, and we had a lot of fun together. Um, but I didn't really have a boyfriend until my junior year in high school, and he was a nerd too, so it worked out pretty good. Um, <laughs> The best thing of all is when, when I was a senior, he graduated from high school, and he went off to West Point. He was a military cadet, and so he was gone. So it was like I had a boyfriend, which really what I wanted was to have a boyfriend. I liked the idea of having a boyfriend more than the actuality of having a boyfriend. <laughs> so it was like I had a boyfriend, he's off at school, and I'm here, and I can do whatever I want, and, and you know that was pretty good. Um, the neighborhood I grew up in was a lot of, well, everybody was the same. I mean, we, I was Catholic, we had Lutherans, we had Protestants, but, you know, we didn't have Jewish people, we didn't have black people, it was all, you know, pretty much everybody was like me. And I went to Catholic schools, which made it even more, everybody was like me. And um, I got out of high school, and I decided I wanted to go on to college. And I went to Michigan State University. I grew up in um, in Michigan. And that was a big change for me. I met people that were totally different. It was, it was an expanding of my horizons, for sure. There were uh, When I went in, there were 44,000 undergraduate students there. So you can imagine, there was quite a variety of people. Um, at that time, I broke up with my boyfriend. He... Um, he had started making decisions about when and where we were going to get married, yet he kind of forgot to ask me about him. So um, it was just, it was time for that to end. So anyhow, I started dating, and um, I, I want to skip back a little bit. My, my brother, one of the twin brothers, was in school at Michigan State also, and that's the, really the main reason I chose Michigan State. There's another school up in Michigan called the University of Michigan. You may have heard of them. They have a football team and <laughs> some other stuff. And they're also a very good academic college. I never even applied to that university because my brother was at Michigan State. That's where I wanted to go. It was a safe place. That fear thing came into play again. Um, also, I wanted to be a hippie, but... <laughs> I was just a little bit too young, and my brother, I, I, I was either a junior or senior in high school, and my brother is up there, and if you could see him now, this is hysterical, he had grown his hair like down longer than mine is. He had this shirt that had a big fist on the back of it, and he went on strike for an entire term. The only class that he went to was golf, and I thought, hey, this is really cool. I want to go there. I want to be just like him. Well, I started college in 1972, and Richard Nixon was president, and he started pulling the troops out of Vietnam, and, you know, there was really nothing left to protest. So I was like, I just missed it. Um, <laughs> anyhow, that, that was kind of what I was looking for. And in January of my freshman year, I came back from school after the break, and I went to this party, and we had all, 
Also, I should tell you that uh, in Michigan in 1972, the legal drinking age was 18, and I was 18, so I was legally able to drink, as were most of the college students. So every weekend in the dorms at the university, you could find a beer party, a keg party, you know, somewhere on the, on the campus. So this particular, I guess it was a Saturday night, um, there was a keg party in my dorm, uh, in the boys' wing. We had a co-ed dorm, and the girls were on one side and the boys were on the other side with a door that locked at midnight in between us. And um, so I went with one of my girlfriends over to this party, and I had a few beers, and I met a guy who had gone to, I went to an all-girls Catholic high school, and I met a guy who had gone to the all-guys Catholic high school right next door to us. And I hung out with him for a while, and he said he had to go off with some friends, but he wanted to introduce me to a friend of his who also went to that school. And once again, there was that safety feeling, like, this is my, my home people. These can't be bad people. So he introduced me to Frank, and Frank is my current husband. And at that time, Frank had hair down to here, and it was curly and wavy. and um, He was really cool. He was cute. And he was a lot of fun. And that night when I met him, he was drunk. But, you know, I was pretty well on my way to being drunk anyhow, myself. And that's what you did in college, is you drank. Everybody I knew drank. So, you know, I didn't think anything of it. So I hung around with him that night, and he came over to see me the next day. And, you know, we started seeing each other. I think we saw each other every day for like three months straight. And we started dating, and it was um, it was just a really wonderful time of my life. That first year, especially, we were Michigan State does have a beautiful campus, especially in the springtime. They've got botanical gardens. They've got a river flowing through the middle of the campus, and you know we used to walk. I remember walking hand in hand across the river and watching the ducks and. You know, it was just, we were young and in love, and it was like a movie. It was great. Um, I continued to study and to get good grades, and I was with Frank, and Frank was different than, than me. And he is a very, very intelligent man, but he didn't much like to study, and he didn't much like to go to class, and uh, he liked to party. So I would party with him, and, you know, get up and go to class. Um, he didn't do a lot of going to class. He didn't do a lot of studying. But he managed to get by. Um, it came our senior year, and I think, this is really terrible, but I think that was the Christmas that um, Frank proposed to me and we got engaged. At any rate, uh, I knew we were going to get married. We'd, we'd talked about getting married for a long time, but we were going to wait till we were out of school. Well, that Christmas, his parents told him that um, they weren't going to finance his college anymore because he was, you know, every term he'd come back with, you know, low grades and classes that he dropped because he, you know, wasn't going to his classes. So they told him that they weren't going to finance his college anymore. Well, my Al-Anon kicked in right then and there. I didn't know it at the time, but I started off. And um, 
I told him that, you know, he couldn't drop out of school. Because that's what, if they weren't going to pay his way, he was just going to quit. And, you know, I was going to marry this man, and I wanted to marry a man with a college degree. I was going to have a college degree, and so was he. I was in control of his life and mine and anybody else who needed my help. Uh, so, you know, I worked everything out. I, I did my first act of enabling. I, I told him he could move in with me, rent-free. I'd pay all the utilities. He could sell his camera, and with that money, pay his tuition. Tuition was a little less than than it is now. And, you know, had everything all worked out. And, and he did that. He moved in with me. Um, he sold his camera, and he paid his tuition and made it through that term. His mom used to call it. We, I didn't tell my parents that um, Frank had moved in with me. They would have just had a fit. I mean, they would have, this would not have worked. Um, but since he had to tell his parents where he was, he told them he was moving in with me. So I, I would answer the phone, and his, his mom would be on the other end, and she'd say, hello, Terry, how are you? And I'd say, hi, how are you? And she'd sound fine. She'd say, is Frank still living there? And I'd say, uh, yes, he is. And she'd say, you know, it's not healthy, dear. It's not healthy. But um, I thought I was helping Frank by, you know, giving him, you know, I was personally taking responsibility for his college education, so I thought I was helping him. In reality, that was probably my first act of enabling. Um, I finished college in four years, because, you know, us Alanines, we like to do everything right as you're supposed to, you know, nothing off-kilter, and it's got, everything's got to be perfect. So in, in four years, I finished, and um, I graduated magna cum laude as a mathematics major with a minor in teaching and history. I was going to be a high school math teacher. Um, this was 1976, and at that time in Michigan, they were laying off teachers. They weren't hiring them. And also, I found out um, when I did my student teaching, I really didn't like teaching. It was really like babysitting. And I admire anyone out there who is a teacher I have all the respect and admiration for you because I know that is a tough job and I, I think it's just getting tougher every day. But anyhow, you know, I sent resumes to like 75 schools within a 50-mile radius of my house. I got three job interviews and one job offer and the job offer I got was from that old all-girls Catholic high school that I went to. It was like, welcome back, Cotter. And uh, and I decided to turn that job down. Um, I grew up in a very religious home. We went to church every Sunday um, from the ages of like 7 to 12 maybe. I was going to be a nun when I grew up. I thought that was the greatest thing in life would be to be a nun. I went to church on the first Friday and the first Saturday of every month. I mean, you know, I did all that stuff, but I got to college, and I had kind of fallen away from the whole church religious scene, and I quit going to church, except on Christmas and Easter, and they expected me, you know, at this high school to not only be a math teacher, but to also counsel these children and to be a religious example to them, and I just felt it would be too hypocritical to do. So I decided not to take that teaching position because I knew I didn't want to teach for the rest of my life anyhow. So I decided I wouldn't take that and I would pursue other career 
path. And my future father-in-law had suggested I try computer programming because I am a very logical person and I'm very detail-oriented and that's, those are good qualities to have if you want to make computers work. So I started looking for a job and looking and looking and looking. And finally, the following January, I did get a job as a programmer trainee. Meanwhile, my husband-to-be, we weren't married then, he did not graduate on time because he didn't have enough credits because he dropped too many classes. And so he had to go to summer school. And, you know, really thinking back on it, I look at kids today and very rarely do they graduate in four years anymore. And, you know, with all the classes that he skipped and the little bit of study he did, it's amazing that he graduated in four years in one term. But anyhow, he did graduate that summer. And this is a resentment I had for a long time. And I think I'm getting over it now. But he got out of school and it was like immediately he had a job. I mean, he went on one job interview and a week later he's working and I'm still unemployed and I'm the one who did everything right and he goofed off and had fun, you know. And I said, there's something wrong with this picture. So anyhow, we got married and after he, he started working, I started working and we got married on August 5th, 1977, we'll be celebrating our 21st wedding anniversary next month. Um, during college, as I said, we drank a lot. Um, when we first met, my husband said, do you do drugs? I said, oh no, not me. No drugs for me. Do you? And he said, oh no, of course not. I believe him. <laughs> um, anyhow, we got married. We were both working. And I feel like we were playing house. You know, I really do. Um, we were going to work every day. We were paying our bills. We were doing our little budget. I feel like we were like playing at being grown-ups. I don't really feel like I was a grown-up, but I, I, I thought I was. And the drinking, we, we did a lot of drinking in college. And I didn't mention this. I'm all out of sync today. didn't mention this, but I grew up, my parents felt, my parents drank. Neither one of them are alcoholics. Um, I do have, my oldest sister is an alcoholic in recovery. I believe she's still in recovery. And my younger brother, I feel, has a drinking problem or a drugging problem. I'm not sure which. Um, but my parents themselves were not alcoholics. But we, we had alcohol in the house and we're Catholics. We drank. I mean, Catholics drink, let's face it. Um, and my parents felt that it would be better for us to drink at home than out on the street. So when they have a party and they have booze, they would let us drink. And the way my parents drank was they drank whiskey straight up with a chaser. And that's how I learned to drink. You know, I mean, later I advanced to, you know, that blue stuff that you mix with Sprite and the red stuff and all those little sugary drinks. But... Yeah, I started off literally with this, you know, side of whiskey. And I want a few bets because I could drink whiskey straight. But, um, you know, I was no stranger to drinking when I met Frank. Um, so, you know, we did a lot of drinking in college and I had a great time and I really enjoyed it. And we got married and we really slowed down on the drinking, both of us. We 
went to work every day and we drank on weekends and had fun, but we were normal young adults, whatever normal is. We, we were married about four years and Frank's parents moved to Atlanta and we went down to visit him one Thanksgiving and we left Detroit, which is where, where I was, and when we left it was snowy and ugly and cold and we came down to Atlanta for Thanksgiving and it was sunny and 72 degrees. We said, hey, we like this. And Frank's father offered Frank an opportunity to go in, an opportunity to go into business with him. And we they, they said, go home and think about it. So we went home and thought about it. And on January 2nd, Frank moved down to Atlanta, and I was a month behind him. When we got to Atlanta, the drinking really picked up, um, and the drugging picked up. I, This is an Al-Anon meeting, and our, you know, our concern is about our loved ones drinking. But my loved one and myself also did drugs, and it's part of part of the story. Um, we got to Atlanta, and with the drinking and the drugging started picking up. And my way of coping, I wasn't one of these Al-Anons who measured what was left in the bottle or who dumped the bottle. My way of coping with his drinking was to keep up with him. I tried my hardest to keep up with him. I thought that if I didn't, that he would leave me. I thought I had to keep up with him in order to, you know, to get him to stay with me. So I drank and I drank and I drank. But I could never keep up with him. I just couldn't do it. No matter how hard I tried, I couldn't keep up with him. Things started to get worse. Um, you know, it just, it, it progressed. We all know how it progresses. Um, we went through some really hard financial times, that got better, and the drinking got worse, and the drugging got worse. But whatever money there was was spent on alcohol and drugs. Um, on our 10th wedding anniversary, we went down to Florida and came back, and on our way back, we were, well, we were a mile from our house, and we were pulled over by the police. And it wasn't because we'd been drinking. Uh, we were driving a car that had an expired tag on it, which in itself wouldn't have been too bad. But on top of that, we didn't have any insurance for the car. And we also didn't, Frank also didn't have a valid driver's license. His license, unbeknownst to me, had been suspended. And he was driving the car. So the police took him in to the police station, and they impounded our car. And I convinced them before they took the car to let me get the luggage out of the back of it. And they did. So I was left on the side of the street with this pile of luggage. It was like I'd been evicted from my car. And, you know, the funny thing is, I was, I was slightly embarrassed, but it didn't seem all that unusual of a thing to happen. I was used to things like that happening. And, you know, people would drive by, and I'd, I'm sitting there, it was a hot August day, and I'm sitting there, you know, in my shorts with my little baseball cap on and my stack of luggage next to me, and people would go by, you know, these nice people on, probably on their way home from church, going by and looking at me with their mouth open and covering their mouths, and I'm like, what's your problem, you know? Anyhow, 
that was really the beginning of a of a terrible downward spiral for us. Um, we were going through a lot of the things that I'm sure y'all have been through. Frank paid the bills sometimes. Um, you know, he'd, he'd go out of town and I'd come home and flick the light switch and the lights wouldn't go on. And I'd call the electric company and they'd say, well, you haven't paid a bill in two months. What do you want? And I'd beg and I'd plead for them to please just turn the lights on for tonight and I'd come down tomorrow and pay it. And of course they never would. So I'd end up going down and paying it. And the, the reason I tell you this is to show how sick I was. Not to show how sick he was, but to show how sick I was. I could have taken over paying those bills. I could have put my foot down and said, look, you're not doing this. Let me do it. But I didn't. I just stood there and waited months and months to see would it be the electricity, would it be the phone, what would it be this month that got turned off. That's, you know, that's insanity. You know, <laughs> doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. Every time something was turned off, I was surprised. Go figure. That Christmas, we were supposed to have Christmas with our in, my in-laws. And, you know, it turned out we spent maybe a half an hour with them. It was a ter- It's still painful for me to think back of, you know, of that, that Christmas and the way that we treated them. But we, you know, we just weren't up for it. Um, there was too much drinking and drugging going on to be able to spend time with family. And like I said, it's a, it's a painful memory. We didn't have any friends left at this time. You know, we'd have friends who'd say, come on over for dinner. We'd say, okay. And then when it came time to go over for dinner, five minutes before we were supposed to be there, we would call and say, oh, I'm sorry, Frank isn't feeling well. We're not going to be able to make it. You know, they've already got the dinner cooked and, you know, bought and gone through all this work and we're calling and canceling. And we did that enough times that, you know, even the last of our friends finally quit hanging out with us, which was fine. I didn't want anybody to see what was going on in my life. I, um, I took to working a lot. I didn't want to go home, so I'd stay at work. I, um, as a result, I, my career went very well because I put in a lot of hours and I worked hard because I'd rather be at work than at home because I never knew what home would be like. I never knew if he'd be happy or if he'd be mad. If he'd be in a good mood or a bad mood, I didn't know. So I, you know, stayed at work as much as I could. Um, I didn't want anyone to come into my house. I thought if, if no one came in, if they couldn't see the way my life was, they wouldn't know. I kept it, I thought I was keeping it a secret. I didn't call my mom as often because I was afraid if I called her, she's still up in Michigan, that she would know what was going on in my life and she wouldn't be happy. I didn't want anyone to know. It was a big secret. Now I know that it wasn't a secret. You can't keep that a secret. But I thought it was. Anyhow, um, Frank started to take off on Fridays. He'd start drinking and drugging on Thursday nights. And then he wouldn't be able to go to work on Friday. And then he'd party all weekend, and a lot of times Monday he wouldn't be able to make it in either. And sometimes I would call in for him. Sometimes he would, and he didn't have a license at this time. I was driving him everywhere. 
And I'd leave for work. I'd say, honey, are you going to work? And he'd say, he'd say, yeah, I'll get a taxi. I'll leave in a little bit. And I'd call him at his office. And I would, I would let the phone ring three times. And after the third ring, his secretary would pick it up. So I'd hang up if he didn't answer him three times. Because I didn't want his secretary to know that I didn't know where he was. And this went on. One time I thought he was dead because I couldn't find him at the office. I kept calling home and he wouldn't answer there. And I was convinced I was going to go home and find him dead on the floor. Um, I would lay awake at night and I would contemplate our divorce. I would divide the furniture up. I did. And it would be like, well, his parents gave us this bed, so he should get the bed. But I'm going to get the table and the sofa because we bought that ourselves. And, you know, I would go through this every night. Oh, and, and he would get the dog. The dog was really his best friend. The dog loved him. So he would get the dog. And then some nights I would get the cat. But other nights I would think, no, I can't separate the dog and the cat. He gets the cat, too. <laughs> and I would go through this every night. But I never once, not once did I say to Frank, I want a divorce. I'm not happy. And the reason I never told him I wanted a divorce was because I was afraid if I told him that, that he would leave me. <laughs> I found that a lot of my pre-Alanon thinking was like that, that I was afraid of the result, which was exactly what I thought I wanted. I was so mixed up, I didn't know which way was up and which way was down. But anyhow, Frank missed enough work that his office finally gave him an option that he could go into treatment or he could lose his job. He called me up at work one Tuesday and told me he had something very important to talk to me about. And we needed to leave work right at 5.30 and I needed to pick him up right at 5.30 because this was very important but not to worry that everything was okay. <laughs> well, by this time, I was really into worrying. So when he said, don't worry, all I did was worry all day. And I picked him up at 4.30. I was so messed up, I couldn't tell time. I, you know, 4.30, 5.30, they all looked the same on my watch. So, you know, I called him up. I said, I, I'm... You know, the gas station down the road. I thought it was 5.30. Are you ready now? He said, yeah, sure. And so I pick him up, and he says, we need to go someplace and talk. I said, okay. Where do you want to go? Well, let's go to the bar. <laughs> so we go to the bar, and over a couple of scotches and water, he informs me that he needs to go into treatment, that he has agreed to go into treatment. <laughs> My first thought is, what? You don't need to go into treatment. I mean, talk about denial. See, I had I had stopped drugging. I still drank, but you know, not very much. So I had stopped the drugs because physically I could not take them. I had reached that point where I could not keep up with Frank anymore. I mean, I never really could keep up with him, but I knew I was going to kill myself if I continued. And so I just stopped, and it was no problem at all for me to stop. And I couldn't understand why he couldn't just stop. And that's why I told him, Frank, just stop. You don't need to go to treatment. And 
he said, no, I have to go. They're going to fire me if I don't go. And the rest of my reaction is, how does all look on me? You see, the world centered around me. And I was more concerned about how I would look. What were people going to think? My mother always said that. What will people think? And I was thinking, what will people think if they find out my husband is in a treatment center for drug and alcohol addiction? And what will they think of me? Not what about him, but what about me? But um, we really had no choice. I had no choice. So on March 17, 1988, we took my husband into treatment. Um, my last name, which is my husband's name, is O'Shaughnessy. For those of you who don't know, that's a very Irish name. So I, I think that God had a little sense of humor putting Frank in treatment on St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> uh, anyhow, we got him into the treatment center. They, we, <laughs> they told him he had to be in treatment on, by Thursday at 5 o'clock or he was fired. Well, we got there at five minutes after five. I thought the world was going to come to an end because we were late. You know, I thought, they're not going to take him. He's fired. You know, I, I had, well, I'm still that way. I'm a little anal retentive. I like everything a little orderly. And five minutes after is not five. So I thought the world was coming to an end. But anyhow, we, I did get Frank checked in. A very nice big guy carried his bags and said, now don't you worry, honey, he's going to be okay. Frank later told me, as soon as I left the door, the guy dropped his bags and said, you carry them yourself. <laughs> they, they did put on a good show for the, um, the family. Um, my, my parents were still up in Michigan, and they had called me earlier that week and said, honey, we're coming down, we're going down to Florida, and we're going to stop by and see you on Sunday. And well, here I am. I've got my husband in treatment, and I can't let anyone know. <laughs> no one is going to know he's not there for six weeks, okay? <laughs> and my parents, especially, I can't let them know what's going on. So um, I went home, and as I said, it was March 17th, and I told you that we had a a terrible Christmas that year. One of the things that happened that Christmas is we put up a Christmas tree like we always do. Um, a real tree. I like to have real trees. I still do. And, you know, after Christmas, like around New Year's, I took all the ornaments and the lights off and I packed them up very neatly all in their nice little orderly rows in their boxes, nice and padded so that they won't break. And I stripped that tree, tree down so that it was totally naked. And I said, okay, Frank, the tree's empty. You can take it out to the street. And for some reason, he didn't. You know, I, I, he was too busy doing other things. On March 17th, that live tree was still sitting in the middle of my living room. I, I hadn't fed it any water because I knew, you know, it was going to leave any minute now. I don't know how it's going to get legs and walk out, but... <clears throat> it was another good reason not to have anyone in the house, but that's okay. No one wanted to come over anyhow except for the guy who brought the drugs. So I went home, and I, I looked at this tree sitting there, and I thought about the fact that my parents were going to be there on Sunday, and I thought, 
what in the world am I going to do? They, you know, they're going to come and they're going to see this tree and they're going to say something is wrong here. <laughs> so I sat down or stood up, whatever. I got a pair of those Playtex yellow rubber gloves and I proceeded with tears in my eyes because I was terribly upset. My whole world was coming to an end. I ripped the tree apart. I, you know, broke the little branches off and stuffed them in garbage bags because you can't tell that a Christmas tree is a Christmas tree if it's in garbage bags. It takes about ten of those big black plastic garbage bags for a six-foot tree. I really did this. Uh, then I was stuck with the trunk. Um, so I waited till it got dark because, you know, we can't let anyone see this because they'll know there's something wrong in my house. So when it got dark, I went in and took the tree trunk and carted it outside with a little storage shed and I hid it in the, in the shed and, you know, then I vacuumed that rug to get all those pine needles out of the rug, you know, because my parents were going to be here in two days and I couldn't let them see the pine needles in the rug because they should have been long gone. You know, you vacuum a few hundred times between Christmas and March 17th. But, you know, I look back on that now and I know I'm not a little woman. I'm five foot eight. I could have carried that Christmas tree out to the curb. It wouldn't have been any big deal. But, you know, it was a symbol of the way things were going in our house. It was, you know, it was not my job. I wasn't going to do it. Um, so, anyhow, my parents came down. I told them Frank was out of town. They were only there a day at work. And I never told my parents that Frank was an alcoholic, that Frank uh, was in treatment, that he was a member of AA. Um, I'm not stupid. And my sister, who's six years older than I, I told you she was in AA. She, um, she told my parents she was in AA, and they just had a fit. And um, she married a guy that she met in AA. And my mother told me, She's never going to meet anything but losers if she keeps going to those AAA meetings. Okay. I knew right then and there that I didn't want to tell my mother that my husband was a loser in AAA. And, you know, sometimes I think, was I doing this for myself? And, yeah, I was doing it for myself. But I was also, it was one of those things that it wouldn't do her any good to know. I mean, they did, did live 750 miles away. And they knew Frank stopped drinking. It was obvious. I mean, they told me they were worried he was going to turn into an alcoholic. They were glad he stopped. But, you know, I, I didn't have to tell them everything that was going on. Um, they told me. When Frank, well, first of all, Frank was in treatment. He went in for drug addiction, right? And I'm sitting home. I didn't get to meet with anyone from the hospital till the following Monday. And he'd gone in on Thursday. That whole weekend, I agonized. Should I call them and tell them I think he's an alcoholic too? And I was going to tell the treatment center about this. this. I had no clue. When Frank went into treatment, I thought alcoholics were those bums that sat under the bridge and drank wine out of paper bags. And my husband was not like that. He, you know, he was a 
intelligent man who was just drinking a little too much. I didn't realize that Frank couldn't stop drinking once he started. I could. And I, that concept was totally foreign to me. Anyway, while he was in treatment, they told me that I should go to Al-Anon. I'm like, okay, fine, I'll go. But I'm only going because an authority figure told me to. And when I go there, they'll tell me how to keep him sober. Well, I was very disappointed. I got there and no one, first of all, no one thought I was special or unique or different. They kept saying, we're going to work on you. There's nothing wrong with me. He's the one who's drinking. I'm the one who quit on my own. I'm the one who has to be home alone while he's at treatment at the country club. You know, poor, poor me. Um, the whole world revolved around me. I thought I was the center of the universe. But I kept going. I kept going back. And I thought Al-Anon was corny. I heard people say, attitude of gratitude. I thought, oh, goody, it rhymes. <laughs> what is with these people? And they're laughing. They're smiling. There's something wrong with them. Don't they know my husband is in treatment? This is real serious. But I went. That you, you had to go if you wanted to visit. And every opportunity there was to go visit, I was there because I was the wife, and that was the wife's job, was to be there for her husband. So I was there every opportunity. And Frank got out of treatment after six weeks, and then he did this 90 and 90 thing. He was at a meeting every day. So what was I supposed to do? So I started going to meetings outside of the hospital, and what happened was that I noticed that Frank was changing, and I wasn't. Because I was going to like one meeting a week, and he was going to seven or more. And he was changing, and I wasn't. I was staying stagnant. I was, if you'd asked me at the time, I would have said, I don't have any resentment. I was full of anger and resentment, just full of it. Um, so I, I went to Alan. And I finally decided I needed to pay attention to what was being said there. And it took me a long time. I'm here to tell you, I'm not a fast learner when it came to Al-Anon. After a year and a half in the program, I got a sponsor. I don't recommend waiting a year and a half. But that fear thing came in. I was afraid that if I asked someone to be my sponsor, first of all, I would call her up and she wouldn't know who I was. Second, when I asked her, would you be my sponsor, she'd say, no. Well, I called her up. She knew who I was, and she said, yes. I can't tell you how grateful I am for this program. It has given me so many gifts that it's just, it's unbelievable. The first thing it's given me is myself. I started off as a child with very low self-esteem, very low self-confidence, even though I was successful. Outwardly, inwardly, I was scared to death. This program gave me myself. It gave me some confidence and some courage to be up here today. Who would have thought I could do this? I wouldn't have. Still not sure I can. Um, it gave me relationships back. As I said, Frank and I had been married 10 years 
when all this came about. And our marriage was not very good. We didn't talk to each other. We didn't, you know, we drank and drugged together. It was all we did. You can't talk when you're doing that. And, you know, I thought, I thought, well, he's going to be sober. And our house is going to sprout a white picket fence around it. And, you know, June and Ward Cleaver are probably going to move into our bodies and we'll be perfect little family. Well, it didn't work out that way. But um, once I got off that pink cloud and, you know, Frank and I both started working our programs, we started to communicate with, with each other. Since he's been sober and I've been in Al-Anon, we probably came closer to divorce than we ever did during those years that he was drinking. See, for me, from my side, when he was drinking, I could say, well, you know, it's drinks that's causing it. Once he stopped drinking, there were no excuses. I had to look at myself. Uh, but we've gotten around that, and we've grown together. And just, you know, it's just been, our communication has improved. We can actually talk about our problems when we have them. I'm more in love with Frank today than I was when we got married, I think. Um, he's a great guy. My relationships with my family. I told you I quit calling my mom too often because I didn't want her to know what was going on. Because of this program, I could make amends to my mother and my father. And I didn't go and say, I'm sorry for the way I acted while Frank was drinking. I didn't do that. They wouldn't have understood that. What I did is I started acting like a good daughter. I started calling them and caring for them and talking to them. My mom passed away um, about five years ago. And, you know, I just thank God for this program because I was in the program when that happened. I was, had a good relationship with her. Um, I could be there with her. And I could talk to her and I could love her and she loved me back. My father, I never talked to him. I was, I was kind of afraid of my dad. He's a great guy. Um, but I was afraid of him. And my family was not a touchy, huggy, kissy family. I saw my father kiss my mother twice in all the years they were married. Once was on their 25th wedding anniversary, and the other time was on her deathbed. So we didn't do a lot of kissing and hugging. and We didn't say I love you. My mom did. My mom told me she loved me, but my father didn't. And because of this program, I could start saying to him, I love you, Daddy. And at first when I'd say that, he would kind of grunt, like, what is she doing? And then after a while, he started saying, mm-hmm. And then after a little while longer, he'd say, me too. And then pretty soon he'd say, I love you too, honey. And now I call my dad every week. I have a great relationship with him. I never talked to him much when my mom was around. We always talked. But now that she's gone, I talk to Daddy a lot. And if I don't say, I love you, Dad, at the end of our conversation, he says, I love you, honey. And so that's, you know, that's something that I I attribute to this program. Um, I have more friends in this program. This unconditional love. To be here with you and to look out at you and know that you're you're my friend, that you love me, even though you don't even know me, but you love me, and I love you too. That's something I can't get anywhere else. I have with me today, my friend Barb is in my pocket. Um, 
I've got my friend Francis, who is doing a kazoo on a float in Dunwoody for the Dunwoody Parade. And I have my friend Beth, who said she would be sweating on the MARTA, which is the train system in Atlanta, after running the peach tree. All those people are here with me, plus many more. Those are my friends in Al-Anon. And that's something that I never had before this program. I never had friends like that. Um, I've got serenity that I didn't have before. I've got a couple of young girls I sponsor who I just love to death. And they call me mom. They're my children. Unfortunately, I'm old enough to be their mother. Um, but they keep me straight. They, they remind me where I came from. Um, that's, that's the gift of this program. I have a relationship with a higher power. I told you I was raised very religious, very Catholic, but I didn't have spirituality. I didn't know the difference. I didn't have a relationship with God. Um, on my first card where I said I had my name written, so in case I forgot it, it would be there. I also have written courage and fear that said its prayers. That's the only way I could get up here today, is knowing that my higher power was standing here with me. The way I've gotten these gifts, and many, many more, is by attending meetings, reading the literature, calling my sponsor, all the things you hear over and over. And um, for me, the biggest thing is service work. I started off in a very small group, and they said, we need somebody to be secretary-treasurer. And you know how it is when it's elections. Everybody sits around and looks at each other. And I've been in the program about six months, and I couldn't stand the silence. I'll do it. And you know what? I'm, I hated that job. I don't like the treasurer thing where you've got to take all those dollar bills to the bank. I don't like that. But what I did like was that I felt a part of. Doing service work made me a part of that group. And for me, service work is anything from attending a meeting, sharing in a meeting, setting up chairs, putting chairs away, being an officer in the group, anything like that. I, um, I've held many different offices in Al-Anon. About, I guess, four years ago, I became GR for my group. And those three years are the years that I grew the most in this program. Because I am a shy person. I'm still very shy. I know you probably think, yeah, yeah, right. But I am. I, when I came here yesterday, my husband said, this is so funny. You're going to be meeting new people. Because I hate meeting new people. And it's not because I don't like you. It's because I'm afraid you won't like me. But when I was GR, it was just, it put me in situations where I had to meet new people. And I had to make phone calls. And that helped me to grow more than anything in this program. And so when that term was up, I thought, okay, what's next? So they needed a GR. Actually, I won't even say they needed a GR. It came time for elections in our district. And I said, I'm crazy myself, but I'm going to stand for district rep. And I did, and I won. And now I'm a district rep. And, you know, that means meeting more people and doing more different things and more being a part of. I think for me that's the biggest thing because I never felt like I was a part of all my life, even before alcoholism entered, entered the picture. I came into my relationship with my alcoholic spouse with all of my parenting defects. He did not cause them. 
alcoholism did not cause them. Alcoholism may have brought them out a little bit better, but it didn't cause them. I had them. I admit to it, them being mine. They're not his. And this program, I'm, I'm so grateful. I, I can't say I'm grateful my husband's an alcoholic because, you know, I'm not really grateful he's an alcoholic, but I am very grateful that his alcoholism led me to this program. Um, and I want to thank you all for listening to me. It's really been a pleasure. Um, I did this for me because I know that when I do this, I get something out of it, and I just hope that someone out there got one little thing out of it, and that'll make me happy. One thing I've learned is it is in giving that we receive. So thank you for this opportunity to, to receive, and God bless you all. Thank you very much, Terry. You were terrific. Uh, the committee asked me to give you this little gift. Thank you. And um, at this time, if anyone would like to stand and say the Lord's Prayer with me, I'd appreciate